Hello and welcome. My name is Akash Pound and this is IFG Live. Thank you all for tuning in. IFG Live is the Institute for Government's platform for holding the events, conversations and debates that normally would take place at our headquarters in central London. The subject of today's discussion is coronavirus and UK devolution. What we'll be discussing is how and how well the UK and devolved governments have worked together during the coronavirus crisis, whether the four-nation approach to this may now be coming to an end, and also what effect this period might have on the future of the Union and wider constitutional debates. We at the Institute published a paper, in fact, discussing some of these questions just last week. And um, if I may be allowed a brief plug, the paper is called A Four-Nation Exit Strategy and is available on our website for anyone interested. This week is certainly one of those weeks when the country at large, including the British government and the London-based media um, in particular, have been reminded of the implications of having separate devolved governments in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, which sometimes seems to get forgotten. It's the devolved governments, of course, who are responsible for many aspects of the response to coronavirus, including the imposition and now the potential easing of the lockdown. And since we published our paper just uh, last week, we have started to see signs that the UK and devolved governments may no longer hold a shared view of what is the appropriate strategy for tackling the pandemic. People in England are now being told to stay alert, but not necessarily to stay at home. And it appears that businesses, shops and schools might begin to open sooner in England than elsewhere. And so today's event really couldn't come at a more interesting moment. So I'd like to thank our panel for joining us for this. Um, thank you also to various people who've submitted questions for the panel uh, via Twitter and email. And I'll try to incorporate as many of those questions as possible during the discussion. But I'd like now to um, introduce our four panellists. First of all, we have Lord Dunlop, Andrew Dunlop, who was a special advisor to David Cameron during the 2014 Scottish independence referendum, later a minister in the Scotland office, and more recently an advisor to the Prime Minister on how Whitehall might better deal with devolution and make the case for the union. Andrew, welcome to the Virtual Institute for Government. Thank you, Akash. Glad to be here. Great to have you as well. Um, second, we have Professor Nicola McEwen of the University of Edinburgh, where she is co-director of the Centre on Constitutional Change and a professor of territorial politics. Nicola, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Third, and speaking at the Institute, in fact, for the third time, I believe, um, I'm very pleased to introduce Carwin Jones, former First Minister of Wales, and member of the Senef, the Welsh Parliament, as it has recently been renamed, for Bridgend. Carwin, very good to have you back. Great pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you. And last but not least, I'm very welcome to, I'm very happy rather to welcome Dr. Katie Hayward, who's a reader in sociology at Queen's University in Belfast and a senior fellow of the UK in a Changing Europe research programme. Katie, very good to speak with you too. Thanks, Akash. Thanks for having me. You're all very welcome. So I'd like to start now with the question of how the devolved governments are involved 
in UK-wide crisis management, uh, for instance, through meetings of the of the Cobra um, Forum, and of course, we'll be we'll be talking uh, mostly about coronavirus. But Carwin, um, if I might start with you, um, what was your experience from when you were in government um, for many years of working with UK ministers and prime ministers during crises? How did that work? Well, you won't be surprised to hear me say that it varied. It depended on the minister, it depended on the department. As a rule, I have to say, uh, if things went wrong, it was through oversight and not through conspiracy. Uh, Some government departments in Whitehall are very much used to dealing with devolution, DEFRA being one prime example. Others are not, the Home Office being (laughs) a prime example. So it depended very much on who you were talking to and the nature of the minister's uh, department. But I have to say, even now, I think there's a genuine desire to work together on the part of all four governments. And I think it's true of Whitehall as well. But then we do get problems, as we saw last week, when one decides to break ranks. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it can be very difficult to maintain uh, an absolutely uniform approach to a crisis. Well, yes, indeed. And we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that in, in a moment. But um, from when you were First Minister, uh, what, what stands out as um, the, the biggest crisis, nationwide crisis, that, that you were involved in? I mean, I suppose nothing that would approach the, the scale of what we're currently facing. Um, but um, what, what does stand out in your memory? I, I think the greatest constitutional challenge was Brexit. Uh, and to a lesser extent, the Scottish independence referendum, which did have an effect on Wales as well and, and Wales's future in the UK. But certainly the last two years of my time as First Minister were, were taken up with dealing with the, the uncertainty surrounding uh, Brexit and, of course, the, the constitutional wrangling that took place at the time. I was very fortunate. I didn't, of course, have to deal with something anything like as serious as this. I did deal with foot and mouth when I was a minister back in uh, 2001. But... What I did find, certainly, is is there is, in the main, a desire to work with devolved governments. Occasionally, that's forgotten about. Occasionally, you'll get an individual, and they're there now in the UK cabinet, who just don't like the fact that devolution is there at all or can't bring themselves to talk about the Scottish and Welsh governments. But they are a minority, in fairness. And I do think what we've seen in the past uh, few months is the ability of UK governments to work together towards a common goal. Yeah, there might be some differences, but then that's not unusual. If you look at Italy, if you look at Germany, even to the States, and I know the States is bigger than uh, the UK, but I mean, you know, almost the level of town councils are able to set their own regulations, it seems to me. So there is a lesson there that cooperation is actually a better way forward than imposition. And do you think, um, as an observer, of course, now, rather than a direct participant, that Welsh ministers, or indeed your 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 um, successor as Welsh First Minister, have been able to exercise um, meaningful influence over key decisions being taken um, in in Westminster and Whitehall. Well, we have to distinguish, of course, between those decisions that are not devolved, and in Wales that would mean justice, for example, and across the UK it would mean uh, decisions on on immigration. Uh, and yes, there will be a view that will be expressed in that regard, but everything else, all the health issues are all are all devolved. Now, it would make no sense for each country to, to go its own way without any reference to the other three. Of course not. But in fairness, that's not what's been happening. And my, my successor, Mark Drayford, has been at pains to say that he sees 
that it's better to come out of this uh, with four countries marching pretty much in step, which is pretty much where they are, even though there are some differences. You know, like me, he is somebody who is a strong devolutionist, but somebody who nevertheless wishes to see the UK stay together. Uh, and what I think we will learn from this crisis is that those who say, ah, but there must be, there can be only one. There must, must be one body that's supreme to the others. Otherwise you get chaos. That isn't the case. We know it's not the case in other countries. And it does show that it's perfectly possible for governments of different parties to work together at the time of world crisis. Yes. I mean, this is a point we make um, very much in our in our recent paper that um, a UK-wide strategy is not necessarily the same as a UK government strategy. Um, and, and it can be one that's that's involves coordination between the governments who may nonetheless take different decisions on some issues. So, uh, Nicola, I'd like I'd like to come to you now. How does all this look from uh, from Edinburgh? Uh, what's your assessment of of how effectively the UK and and Scottish governments have have worked together in this period? Um, well, it's been interesting because, as you know, at the start of this process, um, the relationships had been quite strained, quite difficult as a result of of that big constitutional challenge that Kevin was talking about, um, Brexit has undoubtedly um, created strains in the relationship and the backdrop of the uh, independence issue reignited in Scotland, uh, at least until the current crisis, maybe talk about that later, um, all of that was making relationships quite difficult. And yet, faced with a crisis, um, I think that the overwhelming story appears to be that at least at this stage of crisis management, uh, the relationships seem to be cooperative, productive, collaborative. And yes, there are divergences. Um, last couple of days in particular in communication. Um, but I think broadly it has been um, an example of where when the urgent need arises, ways will be found to ensure that there is cooperation. Do think that will become more difficult um, as we move on to future stages. I think one of the reasons, perhaps, that there has been the degree of cooperation is because everything has been driven so much by the science and by the knowledge of scientific experts, the shared knowledge base that all of the governments are drawing upon, um, and that has helped, I think, to foster uh, cooperation and collaboration and broadly alignment in, in the way that the governments are, are pursuing the responses. Um, further down the line, I think um, science will still dictate part of it, but then there will be the trade-offs, the, the political decisions uh, that have to be made and where there might be different priorities, uh, perhaps resulting from perceptions of need, perhaps also resulting from um, different ideological orientations about what matters more. Um, and there are some, I think, quite significant challenges in the months ahead. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm, I'm, it's interesting you, you brought up that um, point about, is this just about the evidence or, well, yes, is it about ideology or different values? I had a specific question to ask you about that uh, later on in the conversation. But as we're talking about it now, um, yes, I mean, what do you make then of developments over the past few days? Um, when yeah, perhaps at this point still relatively minor differences have emerged, but there are there are some 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 obvious 
differences in the message about people going to work um, and looking ahead when when schools and so on will uh, potentially reopen. So, yeah, is this just about the government's following the evidence? Because it has been suggested, um, I think now by all three devolved governments, that the R value, the measure of how fast the virus is spreading, is now lower slightly in England. And therefore, that might um, mean exit from lockdown sooner in England is, is justified by the evidence. But are we also now seeing uh, ministers taking different political positions about what is the appropriate trade-off between public health and the economy and, and wider societal impacts. Um, how, how do you read it at this point? I'm, I'm not sure we're at that stage quite yet. I mean, certainly the message from the Scottish First Minister has been to stress that um, these are quite small differences at this stage that she doesn't anticipate there being a big gap in when decisions about easing lockdown measures are made in Scotland um, following uh, decisions made uh, south of the border. Uh, so she's not anticipating there being major differences there. Um, I think the R number is, is interesting. It's, it, it's complex. It's not altogether clear um, where things are at and it depends very much I suppose on the level at which you aggregate um, the, the, the data um, but there does seem to be at least a justification that is accepted that you might have varying responses uh, to easing the lockdown in, in different parts of the United Kingdom and that is uh, widely agreed. So one of the things that she was stressing was that her uh, government's um, strategy has not changed, it has not been the one that has changed. Um, and I think perhaps all of the devolved governments have been at pains to stress that the issue of the last few days was more about communication than underlying strategy and the need for clarity about when uh, the UK government is speaking for the UK as a whole and when uh, the UK government is speaking for England. And I think there were some issues emerged in the way in which the strategy was presented by the Prime Minister where that clarity it wasn't quite there. Yes, I mean, that's certainly been been, been quite noticeable um, at earlier points in the crisis as, as well when certain um, policy responses were announced. Um, it was not always at all clear that they were often for England only. And, and at least anecdotally, seems there was evidence of, of confusion being caused as a result, for example, by... Uh, businesses in in Wales and um, and and um, in relation to uh, free school meals um, eligibility as well, um, and that, that's something certainly that that we've identified. And indeed, there's a question um, from someone um, who has tweeted us that I will put um, to Lord Dunlop in a few moments, actually specifically on that. But before I do that, uh, Katie, I wanted to come to you. Um, so Nicola um, made the comparison between the current period of intergovernmental cooperation and the often much tenser and, and, and more difficult relations that prevailed during much of the Brexit process. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, do, do, do you think the UK government is handling the devolution aspects of this crisis um, significantly better than it did for Brexit? Or is that a very... Uh, odd comparison to draw in the first place. 
I mean, the first thing to say is that, of course, Northern Ireland didn't have an executive or a government for the Brexit process. So um, it's worth noting that Northern Ireland executive is having to adjust the fact that it exists, first and foremost, um, as well as trying to balance, of course, the fact there's five parties in the executive uh, from their various different perspectives. And they're, they're rather inexperienced in governing. So they're having to enter this period of crisis, um, sort of hitting the ground running. Um, and of course, as you know, I mean, Brexit has been a real challenge to to unity amongst the parties in Northern Ireland, to put it mildly. Um, and there's been quite a lot of complaints and suspicion about the way that Brexit was handled uh, vis-a-vis communication with Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland parties. Um, that said, I would echo what Nicola, N- Nicola said regarding the handling of the coronavirus pandemic up to this point. So um, there is a sense that there has been more openness from the UK government vis-a-vis Northern Ireland in relation to this crisis. Um, but we are, you know, jumping into a, a, a solution is one thing in response to a big crisis. The, the challenge, of course, now is sort of maintaining that and then coming out of it. And that's definitely what we're seeing now um, in terms of tensions, not only within the executive, but also, of course, vis-a-vis the UK government and the devolves. And does it seem likely to you now that based on based on recent announcements by, by the Northern Ireland executive, including their exit strategy uh, document that, that came out just today, um, that there will be um, significant uh, differences emerging? I mean, one one specific issue, of course, that Northern Ireland faces that the rest of the UK does not is the shared border with the Republic of Ireland. So um, to what extent are decisions in the north um, likely to be affected by decisions taken in Dublin, potentially to try and avoid um, differences emerging in regulations across the Irish border? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very interesting um, from from our perspective over here to see questions about borders, like the Welsh-English border, Scottish-English border coming to the fore, because this is something that we're obviously handling all the time. And there is... Um, it is very true that um, what happens in the Republic of Ireland um, has as much, if not more, of an impact on what, what's going to occur in, in Northern Ireland vis-à-vis handling this pandemic uh, compared to what happens in Britain. Uh, so Northern Ireland, yet again, those points of connection between Northern Ireland and Britain and Northern Ireland and Ireland are very much to the fore um, in all of this. And certainly we see this in the roadmap that was presented today by the Northern Ireland executive. I mean, they're presenting it after everybody else has presented theirs. Um, and we see that, if anything, it, it maps more closely or mirrors more closely the the map coming from the Irish government, um, even in terms of the, the stages and, and the areas that it covers. Uh, we don't have any dates in that roadmap, but, but you can definitely see the influence of the South. And for sure, I mean, the Northern Ireland... Uh, you know, chief medical officer and ministers and um, officials are sharing information and liaising closely with um, those in the South, um, as well as, of course, in Britain. Lord Dunlop, Andrew, I'd like to turn to you now. Um, I mean, what's your overall assessment of um, how well the UK government has managed this as a UK-wide crisis? 
um, but a crisis in which, as we've been discussing, many of the key powers are in fact held at the devolved level. I think overall it's been handled very well. And uh, I would go back to something you said right at the outset. I think um, what it's shone a light on is um, the reality of devolution, that uh, you can have both decision-making in Edinburgh, Belfast and Cardiff uh, to to, um, direct and focus at the particular local circumstances while coming together as a United Kingdom to deal with this uh, immense challenge. And I think what has been encouraging has been the Four Nations approach that I think all the governments involved have wanted to adopt. And of course, um, when you have a shared policy objective, and I think there is a shared policy objective here, you know, protecting the NHS and saving lives, um, it is very much easier to get that degree of cooperation. I suppose that's the big difference from Brexit, where there were huge um, policy differences. And I think where the differences have occurred, they've been relatively modest. And I think the other thing you need to bear in mind through all of this is that um, there are constraints that are imposed on all the governments that are external to the governments. And the two uh, I would highlight are public mood, which I think has been very evident during this crisis. I mean, the public mood is very much to rally round. We're all in this together. And they want to see the governments across the United Kingdom cooperating. So that's the first point. But I think the second point is what, what we're seeing is what I think economists call spillover effects that decisions taken in one part of the country have impacts uh, in other parts of the the country. And all of that, I think, you know, defines the parameters uh, of the degree of divergence there can be. But my overall feeling is that there is a real will to work together to defeat this unprecedented uh, crisis that we're facing. And do you think, um, has your assessment of that shared approach um, across the four nations changed at all over the over the past few days there's been of course a lot of uh, media commentary maybe some of it exaggerated about the differences um, that that are emerging but there are some genuine differences um, it's not just that the slogan stay alert is different to stay at home though that in itself you know, may, may, may lead to, to confusion. But the guidance is being changed in various different ways um, in, in terms of what are reasonable excuses for people to leave their home. The spectre has been raised of, um, yes, potentially people being uh, stopped at the border if they were to travel from England to Wales or to Scotland to, to go hiking or to, uh, or maybe hiking would be okay because it's exercise, but simply for leisure activities. These are the kind of um, issues that, that, that people have been um, noting. Are those a, a matter of concern to you? And, and should, the, should the government be concerned? I mean, I do, I do agree with other speakers that the area that has, I think, posed the biggest challenge and, and perhaps where things are uh, not as joined up as other aspects is on the communications side of uh, things. I mean, we've, we've um, throughout this, there have been differences. I mean, I think 
the First Minister of Scotland talked about face masks uh, before the, the Prime Minister did. I think there have been sort of variations in terms of communication uh, about sort of opening of construction sites and, and these things, even before we had the latest uh, issue about uh, the, the, the slogan. But again, I, I wouldn't want to exaggerate that because if you actually look at uh, the uh, furore, if you like, about the slogan, when you actually read the 50-page document uh, that the UK government has put out, um, I think there is a very clear approach to the next steps that are going to be taken uh, in dealing with this pandemic. And they're not vastly different, uh, either from, for example, what the, the Scottish government has been saying, the Welsh government, or indeed what the uh, Northern Ireland executive uh, is staying, saying to, to today. Um, I, I think the other point I'd make regarding communication, though, is when you're dealing with a crisis, um, the, the normal sort of means and methods of political communication, I don't think um, workers as well, you know, the sort of uh, off the record briefing uh, and trailing. I think um, what builds trust with the public is, is direct communication. Uh, and, uh, and also, I think that works in communication with the devolved government. So, you know, I think it was... Um, Probably uh, on on reflection, you know, the, the devolved uh, leaders of the devolved governments should have been alerted to what was coming down the track before the press were were briefed about it. Well, that was yeah, that was certainly a point that um, Nicola Sturgeon made very forcefully on 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 uh, Sunday in her own statement that she didn't think it was appropriate for the first news she heard of such changes to be via the newspapers. Um, one other question for you um, that, as I mentioned, we were posed on Twitter, but relates to the point that um, Nicola was making a few a few minutes ago about um, communication and what is the territorial coverage of any particular announcements or policies. So I'll read out the question we had, which is from uh, Gareth Young, um, who I know is a, is a campaigner for um, uh, an English parliament. And he asks whether I could ask the panel to petition UK ministers to say England when referring to pledges and policies that only concern England. Talking about schools, hospitals or um, the lockdown across the nation or up and down the country isn't clear. Um, and this is certainly a point that we've made, that um, when ministers aren't clear about whether they're wearing their UK hat or English hat, it can lead to, to confusion uh, among the public and, and others as well, like um, business. I mean, is that a, um, is that a problem that you recognise? Um, I mean, I think, I think in the briefings, the daily briefings, there have been uh, attempts to sort of indicate where this sort of refers to uh, England or, or more widely. And of course, in the measures that are being produced, you know, some are UK, you know, a lot of the economic support measures like the, the furloughing, you know, is, is across the UK. But other, other things are obviously specific to England. And I think attempts have been made to, to make that clear. Um, you know, there's always an, uh, an issue of consistency and making sure it's done on every occasion. 
uh, and that may not always have been the case. But I, I certainly think, you know, there has been an attempt to uh, be be clear about where, you know, the scope of the advice that has been given. Okay, yes. Uh, Nicola, I think you wanted to come in possibly on that point or, or, or something else that um, Lord Dunlop has mentioned. The UK government has two hats and it isn't always clear in the communications, the public communications, which hat it is wearing, whether it is wearing the hat of the UK government governing for the whole of the UK or the UK government governing for England. It's not for me to petition them to, to, to do anything differently, but I think it would be enormously helpful um, in the communications, particularly um, when this is on such a vital issue of public health, for that clarity to be there. And it definitely wasn't there in the Prime Minister's statement on, on Sunday night. I listened to it several times to try to, to, try to, to detect it. It was there a bit more in the the fifty page document, um, and not so much in the statement to to the House of Commons. But I wanted to make another point, and that's in relation to the the plan, the the, the document setting all of this out, because some aspects of that are for England, and some aspects of it are for the UK as a whole. And that's partly linked to areas of competence, and um, but it's also initiatives, um, such as the Joint Biosecurity Centre. Um, and there are various elements of reading that document where the word nation is used and the word we is used. And it's not altogether clear who is we and which particular nation is he referring to. Is it England? Is it, is it the UK as a nation? Which is a perfectly legitimate um, term to use, but it's just not always clear. But what does seem to be the case from the response to, of the devolved uh, governments is that they weren't part of the coming the, the 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 coming together of this strategy. They didn't see the detail. Now that isn't a UK strategy, a four nation strategy. If it isn't uh, the result of the collaboration, if it isn't jointly agreed, and I think it's that bit of intergovernmental relations that the UK has long struggled with. It's the idea of making decisions together, the co-decision processes that we see in many other countries with federal systems or with multi-level systems. And I know that the Welsh Government have been particularly uh, vocal about this and about doing things differently uh, in, in the UK. And I think we're still perhaps struggling uh, with that. And I think the episode of the last few days was an illustration of that perhaps broader problem, but maybe also uh, a broader opportunity as we move forward from here. Yes, thank you. Um, Carwin, I wondered if, if you wanted to come in at this point, um, either on this point about um, communication and whether particular announcements are um, for England only for the whole UK, sometimes for England and Wales and so on, and whether, whether you think that is a genuine problem from a Welsh perspective. Um, but then also Nicola, of course, has, uh, has, has made the points about whether we do need a different reformed system for uh, joint decision making between the governments. Um, and that is something you've very much um, advocated at various points. So 
Yes, well, on those we, two points. Sure, we've come a long way from the days when England and Britain were used interchangeably, so I'm, I'm glad of that. But the problem we have is that while you have the, uh, as it were, federal government, these are an approximation that's also the government of part of the state, then you will get that confusion. People, what people don't know when it's acting uh, and in what role it's acting at any at any one time. Now, those of us who work in devolution clearly do, but the public, we can't expect them to understand that. Now, when it comes to messaging, it was critically important for our first minister to announce what he did before Boris Johnson, not to gain some kind of political advantage or to say, look, we're doing this because England might do that, but purely so the message was heard. Because uh, the, the news machine from Westminster is a vast wave that, that comes over Wales and to a lesser extent Scotland and drowns out any other message. I think it's got worse. The London newspapers ignore the fact uh, that things are different in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland anyway. They routinely confuse England and Britain. The BBC have been guilty of it, I'm sad to say. I think mainly because so many of their people are in London. That's, that's the message that they're hearing, not getting things quite right. So, yes. The messaging hasn't been ideal, although I think the last few days has brought this into into relief. And I've been surprised at some media outlets expressing surprise that devolution exists at all. And this has been news to them, even though it's been there for the past 20 years. I think in terms of the second point you made, which I think was about um, the, the government's working together and structure. Yeah, well, for a long time I've said that yeah, my view is quite radical. I don't believe in parliamentary sovereignty. Now, there will be those who say, well... But uh, now that's been a cornerstone of well, English constitutional law, actually, not so much Scotland uh, for 200 years. There has to be one organ, one parliament that's supreme over all the others, even though there is no one government that's supreme in that sense. And my view is, well, no, you can do it in a way that engenders trust. Canada has a system of pooled sovereignty. Uh, as long as everybody knows uh, what the responsibilities are for each um, administration, I think that's fine. We do have the mechanism already in place to create a co-decision-making process. The Joint Ministerial Council basically is nothing more than a meeting where everybody moans at the Westminster government, uh, which is in no one's interest. But that's what happens in reality. It doesn't do very much, and it's not particularly effective, and it's been that way in the 20 years that I've known it. So it's not a, it's not a part of the real issue. But that could become a kind of mini European Council in terms of decision-making. Why is it needed? Well, let's, for example, look at agriculture and fisheries. There has to be a mechanism where there's agreement on a common framework. It works for everybody. Fisheries are the same. What are the allocations for each nation? The problem you've got is that if you say, right, it's the role of the agriculture minister, agriculture secretary, to allocate payments to each part of the UK, the actual sum, well, but that person is also the English minister. If you look at fisheries, you know, at the allocation of fishing quotas around the UK, it means, in effect, that the fishing minister who is responsible for English fisheries is responsible for telling everyone else what their quota is. That's the problem. And it's inherent at the heart of our current constitutional settlement that you've got ministers who are UK ministers and English ministers. There is a, and finally, there is a huge cultural reluctance in, in, in Whitehall and Westminster for people to refer themselves as English ministers. We do it quite often. And when we're talking about areas that are quite devolved, but they are absolutely hate it in Whitehall. They always see themselves as UK ministers, which of course in law they are, but it doesn't help in terms of clarity. Yes, very interesting. Um, Katie, I think you uh, would like to come in on that point. Yeah, just a couple of things. So um, the first point is about information sharing being different from coordination. So I think the information sharing has been quite good, but then 
in terms of communication of a position and then coordination around those positions, we are seeing some problems. And uh, in Northern Ireland, of course, we've seen that vis-a-vis announcements being made by the Irish government um, and the Northern Ireland First Minister and Deputy First Minister knowing that announcement was going to come, but not knowing what it would contain. So we have a mirroring of that. Um, and then in relation to that, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's true, of course, that devolution was never meant or never sort of intended to handle something like this. So crises would be very locals, like a, you know, extreme weather event or something like that, rather than something that's um, so global of this nature. And uh, I, I was looking back at the um, exercise Cygnus about, you know, the um, sort of running through of what would happen in an influenza pandemic. And it's really interesting to note what was coming through from uh, Northern Ireland participants in, in that exercise back in 2016. And they were pointing then to the need for clarification about UK level decision making and that um, they were complaining about key decisions being made without consulting the four UK countries. Um, so it, it wasn't as if we didn't, it, you know, those gaps haven't been known for a long time and even had been identified for in relation to a crisis. Um, and yet um, we're really seeing the consequences of not properly preparing for that now and and uh, and the need to address it quite hurriedly, I would suggest. Hmm. Thanks. Um, Andrew, on this point of um, how the governments work together and, and take decisions together, I mean, you've thought a lot about intergovernmental relations. Um, you've been involved in them too, of course, when you were a minister in negotiations and so on. Do you think there's a need for a new system or new mechanisms for joint decision making between the governments um, in the way that um, well, both Carwin and, and, and Nicola set out? I mean, on the basic point, I mean, I do think that um, our system of intergovernmental relations does need to be uh, overhauled. Um, like Carwin, uh, I have attended um, meetings of the Joint Ministerial Committee and, um, you know, I didn't find them, um, you know, something that I particularly look forward to. Uh, and I think that is probably true of devolved ministers as, as well. And I think the JMC has become too much about dispute sort of management, whereas um, I, I would like a, a, a more um, front-footed approach to intergovernmental relations where one is sort of looking for opportunities where it makes sense to work together on matters of common interest to, to do so, you know, whether it's climate change, drug abuse, uh, you know, how we improve productivity or in the aftermath of this crisis, how we do the sort of economic uh, repair job. And overall, I think you need to sort of change the culture and the behaviour uh, of it to become something that feels more like a joint uh, endeavour. Now, having said all that, um, Carwin said that his his um, views on it are quite radical, and uh, I wouldn't follow uh, Carwin uh, all the way down the road that he is going. Uh, and I think um, it, it should be a, a forum that is more pre predictable, uh, more transparent, uh, and where the incentives to build consensus 
where competencies shared uh, are all very much built into that system. So um, I, I personally, you know, some people say you should put it on a statutory footing. Uh, I think, you know, political issues need to be managed in a political space. Uh, and, you know, I'm not myself attracted to um, sort of majority voting because you could have, you know, one part of the uh, UK overruled in its own area of competence by uh, another part of, of, of the UK. And I, I don't think um, a federal system, you know, works particularly well when one of the parts, England, represents, um, you know, over 80% of the total uh, entity. Nicola, I wanted to come to you um, on, on this issue in the first instance. Um, I mean, you've done a lot of, of, of research on um, intergovernmental relations in the UK, but also overseas, looking at uh, federal systems. And we have had a couple of questions about that. So Martin Kettle of The Guardian um, has asked, looking at the way different governments in Europe and beyond have responded to coronavirus, would you consider that federal systems in countries in which separatism is not a live political issue, like Germany, have handled the devolution of decision-making better than the UK? Um, So that's one particular question. And then I'll bring in another one, which is just a more uh, straightforward question about whether there are any lessons effectively from the way that um, other federal systems like Germany um, have moved at different speeds in responding to coronavirus. There's a question from Jackie Kemp, who's a writer from Edinburgh. Um, So I wonder if you've, I don't know if you've observed particularly closely what's happened in Germany, but just more generally, if there's lessons from uh, federal systems for good and bad ways to manage these kind of things. So I think it was interesting that Germany was um, the example that was used in both of those questions. And Germany's not a federal system like all the others, uh, in the sense that uh, the lender government have a very strong role in shaping uh, what uh, the national policy is. They They are directly represented in the federal parliament. And so they're shaping the strategy that they then can implement uh, within each of the regions and in various uh, ways. And we have seen variation in Germany, in many other countries, about the way in which um, governments are responding to the pandemic and also perhaps the way in which they are exiting um, the strict lockdown measures as well. That's really common um, in federal and multi-level states. Um, But I don't think it's particularly um, linked to whether or not there is a secessionist issue. Um, The United States is probably uh, the example of of, um, perhaps, well, it's not not secession, there is no secessionist issue there, but there has been a problem in in the functioning of federalism and that has enabled significant variation uh, between the states and In this case, as we've seen in other cases, when the federal government isn't acting, some of the states step up and act uh, autonomously uh, and do things quite distinctively. Um, But I think in terms of the German case, it's an illustration perhaps of 
the issue that we were talking about before, about when the regions and, in our case, the nations, are part of the decision-making process, then it becomes easier to do things on a cooperative basis. And that's always going to be difficult in the UK when you have one nation uh, that is so overwhelmingly dominant in terms of its population and resource uh, compared to the others, and when there is no uh, distinctive government uh, for England, devising a, a decision-making process uh, around that becomes uh, particularly difficult. Okay, great. Um, so, I mean, this this question of um, separatism or, or, or pro-independence movements um, has come up. And I did want to go on uh, briefly in our last uh, few minutes of the conversation to talk about how this period, this crisis, the way the governments have responded might affect the the politics of the union. So, I mean, Nicola, um, in, in Scotland, um, the Scottish government, of course, put on hold its plans mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a second independence referendum, uh, which well, they had been hoping to hold this year, though that didn't seem particularly likely anyway, but that is officially <laughs> no longer the plan. But what happens going forward? I mean, there are due to be elections still, of course, for the Scottish Parliament um, and, and Welsh Parliament next year. Is this going to be just a brief pause in the ongoing uh, constitutional debate? Are we just going to go back to uh, what we to, to, to another campaign dominated by the independence question, or, or might things be different? I think it's impossible to say, Akash. Um, I thought you might say that. Know, but... <laughs> we don't know what the new normal will be. Um, what, all we can say with any confidence is that uh, timing has been affected. Uh, it's not just in terms of the announcement not to proceed with a referendum this year, although, as you say, that wasn't likely anyway but also the resource that had been set aside within the Scottish government to explore issues around independence has been redeployed um, to to work on, I think, primarily COVID uh, response. Um, But the issue hasn't gone away. And the the most recent poll just from a few days ago indicated that there hasn't been any shift in the balance between um, those in favour of and those opposed to independence. It's sitting at 50-50 still where it has been for a long time. So I don't think the issue is going away and it will be interesting to see how the governments and the parties um, in the, as we exit from the immediate crisis and seek to rebuild and to engage in the recovery, how they, they do that and engage with the constitutional issues as they do so. So if we see a narrative emerging, and I was struck by some of the, the phrasing that Lord Dunlop was using uh, around uh, the, the response being the best of the UK, in a sense, if this is if, if the response to coronavirus is used as evidence or the, the, the development of a narrative around being better together, um, the phrase, the campaign slogan of the 2014 uh, referendum, then clearly um, the constitutional issues uh, will, will re-emerge and they will creep into the relationships between uh, the governments. I was struck um, by um, uh, the section at the very end of the UK government's plan uh, issued uh, on Monday where the government talked about it being its responsibility to build the public health and governmental infrastructure across the entirety of the United Kingdom. Now, if they do that in partnership with the devolved governments, um, then, you know, 
then that's interesting. That's really interesting for intergovernmental relations. But if they try to bypass them, put a flag on it, perhaps a union flag on it, then you can see how those sorts of tensions will emerge again uh, within uh, the wider constitution yes, of the debate. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting issue to watch. Um, Andrew, I will come to you uh, at the end, actually, on this this question. Just to just to be aware of um, what, what your take on 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 this is. This going to change the politics of the union, as Nicola raised um, the question herself. Um, but before I do that, Katie, I wanted to come to you to ask. Similarly, do you think this period um, is changing? May change um, the debate around possible reunification of Ireland, um, as uh, some people thought Brexit might make, might make more likely? Um, I, do, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating period, and, a, and I would echo Nicola's comments. I mean, we, we don't know where we're going to, to be when we come out of it, except in a worse place. Um, the Northern Ireland economy is, is going to be um, really devastated by this and um, with all sorts of knock-on effects um, even leaving Brexit aside. Um, and, I mean, primarily the overriding response to um, to the challenges of coronavirus and how it's been responded to um, here has been somewhat polarising. So unionists say what you'd expect unionists to say and nationalists say what you'd expect them to say. Um, and it's just been a, a slight different difference of emphasis, so emphasising the geographical unit of the island of Ireland. It makes sense to do things um, thinking of it in those terms as a, as a single epidemiological unit um, or thinking uh, about the value that um, the UK government's funding and financial support for, for Northern Ireland has been at this time, making it possible, for example, to have the furlough scheme operating at all. So you can see just how the, um, the differences of emphasis will continue and I certainly wouldn't anticipate it making... A, a radical difference in and of itself to um, people's positions uh, vis-a-vis the union or unification. Um, I think they'll just persist just with with a with a different focuses as as has already yes. existed. Yeah. Okay, and um, I mean, any any reason why it might change views in Dublin, which is uh, in terms of the main parties and government at least tended to be quite cautious about encouraging talk of an early border poll oh yeah i mean so it has been interesting to see the way that the irish government has handled this i mean the north south ministerial council has been useful um but oftentimes we've seen the the challenges of the irish government making policy decisions and then just having to um, accept the fact that that things will be done differently in Northern Ireland. So really, the, the questions of whether you can do things on a cross border basis, they really matter on the ground. So the sort of the clear messages or the conflicting messages that come out north south are are, are really important. Um, Sinn Fein is worth noting that they have been quite interesting in all of this because. They didn't want to come back into power sharing, being seen to be patsies to the DUP. They've been quite clear about wanting to um, stand up to the DUP if needs be. And we have had quite a bit of that going on even through this pandemic. And of course, they've also got their own challenges in the South, having done so well in the election there. No long, you know, they're not involved in negotiations for stepping into government, but they do want to raise the 
the Ireland of Ireland um, response as a point of criticism of the Irish government. So, you, of course, you have the politics in all of that, but I think really it's changing um, positions as they would have existed before any of this started. Great. Okay, thanks. Okay, one final question for Carwin, also about the effects on the the constitutional debate. Um, I mean, we had a specific question from from Richard Martin um, in Cardiff about whether this crisis has nudged the UK towards becoming an almost federal state. Well, we've talked a bit about federalism already, but so whether on that or more generally, I mean, do 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 you do you think that? Um, this period is going gonna, is gonna to change the way people in Wales um, view devolution and the constitution in any significant way? No, I think it's too early to tell. I can't see it one way or the other. I don't see a particular rise in support for independence. and I don't see a particular rise in those who want to go back to the old days. <laughs> people know that there'll be different approaches. What, what people don't want to see are radically different approaches. They don't want, I mean, this is one of the issues in Ireland, of course, where you know, the border between North and South and Ireland is, is as porous as the border between Wales and England. Uh, and so in Ireland, it's a real issue if there are substantially different approaches to the um, to, to the disease there. I think people do understand, and you know, from what I've been hearing, people are happy with what the Welsh Government have, have announced. They know there'll be slight differences, but what they wouldn't want to see is some major difference uh, between between Wales and England, uh, or in England or anywhere else for that matter, or any other country, you know, because they know that the virus isn't ideological. And I think the, the issue here is that this is a virus. It doesn't. Have, well, there are no politics around the virus except in America, uh, and so you can't really gain a political advantage uh, when dealing with the virus. Nor should you. Anyway, people wouldn't want that to happen. Uh, so this is not an ideological issue. You, you can't say, well, you know, if we'd been independent, we'd have done it this way, uh, because in reality, that would mean closing our own border down, which you know <laughs> is, is in the realms of fantasy. So no is, is the answer. I don't think we will see this swaying people one way or the other, but I do think that it's an example, and, I, and Andrew touched on this, that illustrates that it is quite possible for governments to work together at times of, of crisis. And I hope that we can move away from, you know, he mentioned the, the JMC, from, from a scenario where it seems to be the function of devolved governments when they talk to the UK government to complain. And it seems to be the function of the UK government to nod sagely and, and pretty much ignore what's been said uh, and wish there was somewhere else at the time. I, I think we need to go beyond that now. And I do think there's a tremendous opportunity to, to build on what we already have and that is an intergovernmental structure that can be strengthened into something far more constructive and not really a sounding board, which unfortunately is what it's always been. If you look at the British Irish Council, again, that's largely window dressing, really. It's interesting, but it's more like a seminar than uh, than a council. And it is important, of course, in the peace process in Northern Ireland. But yeah, we could, we could build something very constructive out of this uh, in terms of governmental relations and take the heat and the suspicion out of the relationship between the devolved governments and the UK government that that's always been there from the very start of devolution. Yeah, well, that's a, certainly a debate we'll, we'll we'll continue to engage in, and uh, maybe we'll have you back for a fourth time to speak at the institute. Um, final word to you, um, Andrew. Um, I mean, you've listened to, to to those different perspectives. I mean, w- w- what do you think on this point of making the the the, the 
desire of the UK government, of course, to make the case for the union, why we are better together, to use that phrase. Does this period change the way that the UK government both makes that argument and indeed operates in terms of, um, as Nicola said, potentially trying to take a more um, you know, assertive role in, in what have previously been seen as devolved functions like public health? Well, first of all, can I just say that I very much agreed with the sentiments that Carwin was just uh, expressing. But in, in terms of your sort of broader question, uh, I think very much it's a case of um, showing and not telling. I, I think the, you know, I mean, who knows what public opinion will be, um, you know, next next year or two years hence. But my instinct is that having gone through this um, extraordinary uh, period uh, of crisis in this sort of pan- pandemic, um, that people will be very much focused on if you like, what is going to be the long tail of this crisis, which is the economic recovery that we must all get behind. And I think that will put a premium on all the governments within the United Kingdom working together and bringing to bear their different um, levers that they can pull um, to achieve that uh, recovery. And I think um, my, my instinct is that people are going to be very focused on the practical and you know what influences their daily lives and i think there will be a strong desire amongst the public to see the four governments of the united kingdom working together to achieve that end okay well i think that's a perfect place to end the conversation and um, thank you all very much to our four panellists for taking part. It's been um, really, really fascinating to to speak with you all about these matters. And I hope uh, people listening have enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, Please do look out for more from the Institute for Government over the coming weeks. We'll have lots more events, lots more podcasts, more research, and plenty more to say. So thank you for joining us.